Can you teach a guy like me how to make all those cool moves? Like judo and kung fu. Huh? Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, we have reached the eighth episode of Cowboy Bebop. And you might not realize it, but this is a really, really, really important one. Colin, you might not realize it, but I think you say that about almost every episode. But it's true this time, because in case you haven't noticed, Cowboy Bebop exists in different eras. So we had the Bandai Toys era, then we had the Bandai Visuals era. And I would say the big difference, if you haven't noticed so far, is really just about focusing on characters. Every episode so far, we focused on a single person and really delved into their history and their backstory. I guess you could say the same thing about the Space Warriors and maybe about... Gordon? No, that doesn't count. But certainly with Wen and VT and now Roko, we've learned a lot about characters. Have you noticed there may be a more maturing tone in the series so far? Beyond just blood and guts. Yeah, I, I think especially since episode five, we've seen a lot more maturity and depth from all the characters. And uh, specifically, even in episodes that are more of kind of like one-offs, you know, and, and they don't uh, feed into a bigger storyline, sort of like this week's episode, uh, we really do get to see some important character growth and some just layers of characters revealed to us, which is pretty cool. I felt like this week I actually learned something important about Spike and watched him grow. And I have no idea what you're talking about, so we're going to have to get to that later on. And I will say the episode we're going to talk about this week, it's a lot more straightforward than most of the other ones we've handled. Maybe this will be a shorter episode. Who knows? But first, we need to get into a little bit of Bebop history. And this week's subject is the English voice director, Mary Elizabeth McGillan. We've actually talked about her in plenty of episodes in the past. In fact, she was the person that played Twinkle Maria Murdoch in episode four, which we both very much appreciated. Well, she grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and Mary became enamored with television and science fiction and soon began dreaming of an acting career and a role on Star Trek. Hey, get in line, sister. I mean, she kind of ended up on Star Trek by doing Bebop in a way. Yeah. After graduating with a degree in theater and an MFA in acting, she joined the cast of The Globe, which is the oldest and most respected Shakespearean theater group in the world. And by oldest, I mean they took a break for over 300 years, <laughs> so it's not quite the longest running. You ever heard of The Globe? They do the, they're in that big theater over in London. Now. Never heard of it. Really? No, I don't. Have you ever seen that film? I'm not a theater guy. <laughs> have you ever seen Oscar-nominated film Shakespeare in Love? I, I have. Do you remember where the plays took place? At, at the uh, the titular Globe. That would be it. All right. Is it titular at that point? If we're talking about the Globe Theater Group. Okay, fair enough. And and we're talking about the movie Shakespeare in Globes. Okay, well, you're probably going to be more familiar with her following work, which were a bunch of one-off appearances in Murder, She Wrote, Quantum Leap, and Walker, Texas Ranger. A.K.A. All the Shit I Watched in Syndication at My Grandma's House. Seriously, how good is Quantum Leap? The best. That was until 1995 when she was injured on the set of Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, now, check this out. She played a woman who... Who was being hung from a noose and had to swing back and forth until Xena saved her. Everything went fine, believe it or not. Not one injury there. But it was the next scene where she had to like kick up a horse, you know, get on tiny legs. Mm -hmm. Instead, the horse fell backwards on top of her. Jesus. <laughs> that sounds painful. Well, she dislocated her kneecap. Ugh. I've never actually heard of that happening before. That sounds fun. Now, it might seem kind of weird that she was on Xena Warrior Princess, but believe it or not, almost everyone involved in the main cast of Cowboy Bebop was too. They do these things called combat overdubs, you know, where they're like, huh, ha, uh, uh. Yeah. Almost everyone in Cowboy Bebop was involved in that. I guess it was easy money. Oh, and here's another fun fact. The name of the horse was Cher. Man, if only Mary Elizabeth could turn back time <laughs> and keep her kneecap from dislocating. If you believe in career after horse accident, <laughs> that's the worst fucking Do you believe in career after horse accident, accident? Now here's the bad news. Her only other work was Beetlejuice's Rock and Roll Graveyard Review at Universal Studios. Ooh. Which, in case you don't know, involves a lot of dancing, and uh, I guess the kneecap is involved in dancing. Kind of an important part. So she had to go into something else. Voice acting. Now, her first acting role was for El Hazard, The Wanderers, where she played Queen Diva. After years of working at Zero Limit Productions, I guess they just sort of ran out of directors. So eventually they asked if she would like to take on a series, and she agreed. But she was kind of nervous, and after all, she was still trying to get back into live action stuff now their knee had healed. 
That was until a disastrous audition where an unnamed but brazenly rude celebrity caused her to second guess her entire career. Wait, we don't know who it is? She wouldn't say. Ah, uh, why won't you kiss and tell, Mary Elizabeth? I'm going to guess it's Walker, Texas Ranger again. Yeah, maybe it was Angela Lansbury. I hear she's a real dick. Two days after that, she was asked if she would like to direct Cowboy Bebop. Though she frequently voiced her concerns to her supervisors due to her, you know, inexperience, she recalls being shown the intro to Bebop and immediately asking the owners of the studio, why aren't you doing this show? <laughs> well, it was too late for her, so she jumped in head first, and I think the results speak for themselves. In terms of directing, she prefers to be the expert, learning as much as he can about a show and its characters, and helping to guide the busy voice actors into a faithful adaptation of the character. Because in case you don't know, voice actors work a lot. Afterwards, she went on to direct a number of series, including a string of episodes of Naruto, Digimon, and Bleach, as well as the entirety of Wolf's Reign and Pen Zero Part-Time Hero, as well as video games, including Drakengard, Resonance of Fate, and Spy Hunter Nowhere to Run, which in case you don't know, was meant to be the film adaptation that never actually ended up getting filmed. Yeah, so the, the game existed, but the movie was never made. Which means that Mary Elizabeth McGillan actually directed The Rock. Also, she's a close collaborator with Akira Yamoka, yes, the video game composer from Silent Hill. In fact, Miguel has actually sung a number of Silent Hill games. Now, professionally, her biggest regret is unsuccessfully campaigning to direct Death Note. But on the bright side, she did end up appearing in an episode of Star Trek Voyager in 1997, which many cite as the worst Star Trek outside of Enterprise. So, well, whatever. <laughs> Dude, Enterprise is way worse than Voyager. Also, I like weird Deep Space Nine fanboys. Yeah, that, I, you know what? If there's one show that has me interested, it's Deep Space Nine, because I guess there's a war. Deep Space Nine is like, you're either interesting or a child killer if you like this show. One or the other. Anyway, Mary Elizabeth McGillan is now engaged to the voice of Spike, Steve Bloom. And they actually go on tour together as a singing duet. Kind of a happy ending, huh? Yeah. Now, Steve, I have a trick question for you. Today's episode, Waltz for Venus... What is it named after? Um, the band's The Last Waltz. Yes, why not? Uh, no, I don't know. It takes place on Venus, so Venus. I looked it up and there's absolutely no songs named after this. No albums, no artists, nothing. Nothing prior to the release of this. So, Waltz for Venus, for maybe the first time since Asteroid Blues, is a complete standalone Nothing could possibly be connected to this. Well, a lot of this episode is about fighting and fluidity, and the waltz is... Uh, a, no, I'm making all this up. <laughs> well, there's actually a song on there called Waltz for Zizi, but that's off of the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack, and there's no evidence that, you know, it wasn't named after this episode. We don't know which one came first. So one influenced the other, or it's just a quinky dink. But uh, let's talk about that for a second. The the waltz, you know, it's a three-four measure, three beats, four measures. Uh, became popular in Germany in dance halls during the 16th century, and of course, it's still commonly used today. Stephen, let us go through some examples of the waltz in popular music and rank them. Let's start off with Seals, Kissed by a Rose. Uh, Kiss from a Rose, bitch. 10 out of 10, best song ever. That was off of the Batman Forever soundtrack? Yeah. Mama, mama, kiss from a rose. Nickelback surprisingly did not perform that song. That one I was actually probably the most surprised by. I couldn't hear the waltz. I had to go back and listen to it because it just feels so loose. Oh, we should actually just count out the Walter people. Colin, it's a motherfucking waltz. It goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That's a waltz. It, just to spell it out, because maybe not everyone knows. Now, what about Elliot Smith, waltz number two, XO? That's fine. It's not one of my favorite Elliot Smith songs, but it sure is a waltz. All right, let's eh. go with it then. What is your favorite Elliot Smith song? Ooh, um... I like Say Yes. That's a good one. I enjoy Son of Sam. They're all pretty good. How about Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing? That was a waltz I didn't realize was a waltz. I didn't know that either. When you think about it, it totally makes sense, though. It, it, that actually might be 6-8 time. Some of these are 6-8. They're not just strictly 3-4. Count Whatever. that out for the people, too. No. <laughs> How about George Michael's Cowboys and Angels? I don't know what that is. Is that like some mid-90s George Michael? Hell yeah, it's some mid-90s George Michael. It's really good, though. It's, it's a good song to show your dick to a cop. <laughs> you mean an angel? Yeah. The Animals, House of the Rising Sun. That's got to be 6-8. That's not a waltz. Are you kidding me? Do you like it? That's a good song. I actually hate that song. Really? You hate you it's, hate House of the Rising Sun? It's so basic. Uh, you're so basic. You're like the Ugg boot of humans. I don't know. That song just got, kind of played out for me. Uh, Billy Joel's Piano Man. Eh. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Hey, man, Glass Houses, though, killer album. The Stranger, killer album. Piano Man. Eh. I feel like every time I go to an Irish pub, there's somebody singing that damn song. Yeah, there's nothing better than some dickhead at a piano bar like, oh, time to play Piano Man. Is Billy Joel Irish? I don't get it. 
I don't know. How about in an airplane over the sea? I didn't know that one was a waltz either. That's probably 6'8", though. Yeah, it's 6'8". I just counted it out on my leg. And I will say, my personal favorite waltz, I saved it for last, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Yeah, that's a hot jam. Also, the government killed Sam Cooke. Google it. Well, luckily, we won't have to Google when this episode aired. Steve! When did Waltz for Venus originally air? I'm so glad that you asked, Colin. It aired on TV Tokyo, April 24th, 1998. Whoa, it actually aired on TV Tokyo! Hey, first time, long time. (laughs) It also aired on my favorite TV channel of all time, Wow Wow, on December 12th, 1998. And on Adult Swim, December 23rd, 2001. Just like Sympathy for the Devil, they delayed this episode by two whole months. Let's be broken records. It's because of the intro, isn't it? There's a hijacking on a plane. Yeah, it's a little 9-11-y. Hate to have to keep bringing that up, but man, that totally screwed up the air dates for the Adult Swim run. Now, the director was Yoshiyuki Takai, who we last saw on Gateway Shuffle, who also directed the uh, first episode, Asteroid Blues. And the writer is Michiko Yote from last episode, Heavy Metal Queen, as well as Stray Dog Strut and Battle of Fallen Angels. Like I've said before, I think she's my favorite writer on the entire series. All right, so this episode starts out in a semi-familiar way because it starts off with a shot of space, which is a very familiar way for a Cowboy Bebop episode to start. But this time, there's an airplane? There's a commercial airplane, right? Yeah. Which is kind of (laughs) weird. You know, it's funny now that you mention it. Whenever the episodes would start off in outer space, they didn't seem to have much of a reason. It didn't connect to the initial thrust, the initial action. Last episode started off in space. Space trucker. You had to be introduced to that. This episode we're starting in space. Airplane. Like, it makes more sense instead of like... Because it's the Spaceman show. Yeah. Like, episode three, I think, started off in space, went down to Chinatown, and then we saw Faye, which is like this huge leap. Yeah, it's a little weird. So, a couple questions for you, Colin. So, there's no baby crying on this airplane, but there is a pre-recorded message that warns people of uh, airborne spores on Venus that can cause severe sickness. Is the future a better place or a worse place? I really don't know. That's a that's a real toss-up. I mean, I would love to go on an airplane without a crying baby, but I would hate losing my sight due to floating plants. Yeah. Also, why does the existence of airplanes in Cowboy Bebop got me all fucked up? Because that, it like really threw me for a loop for a second. I was just like, I don't know what's going on. I was thinking a lot about this, and I feel like this humanizes the universe so much more. Because previously, you're either, you know, a shady person, a nobody, or you're a planet-traveling bounty hunter and or criminal. Seeing people that just need to get to another planet and buy a ticket, that just feels so much more like our, our world and how we get around. Whereas previously, it kind of felt alien and isolated. The universe felt almost kind of closed off in a way. So I don't know. I like it. Not only that, but I love those shots of people being in their natural states. You know, people sleeping, looking out windows, someone's reading. Just like what we saw in the very first episode on Tijuana. It really made all the difference. Now, before we move on, the plane is watching an obvious takeoff of Tom and Jerry. We got a cat. We got a mouse. Cat does a dive. Mouse runs into a mouse hole. Cat goes right through the wall. Hilarious. Now, Tom and Jerry is one of the most famous cartoons ever produced. It always centers around the cat Tom and the mouse Jerry attempting to murder each other. It was created in 1940 by Hannah and Barbera for MGM Studios. Yes, the same people made the Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, and a bunch of other cartoons in the 1960s. That looked like shit. Yeah, but really impressive. No, they're they're iconic, but the animation is poo-poo. Real quick, though, Colin. Mm. Uh, Flintstones or Jetsons? Uh, Flintstones. Follow-up question. If you had to live in one of the universes... Which one would you live in? The Flintstones universe or the Jetsons universe? Jetsons. Uh, Okay. Follow up to the follow up. Why didn't you say Jetsons in the first place? Because the Flintstones use animal labor. There are sentient dinosaurs that can talk and they are used as slaves. There's a garbage disposal that talks and it just has to live under a sink and eat shit. How do you feel about that? Uh, Actually, why don't we just listen to this garbage disposal and I quote, eh, it's a living. (laughs) Now, Hanna-Barbera directed 114 Tom and Jerry cartoons, which were hugely popular. I feel like that's something that gets lost in the shuffle. They were just as big, if not bigger than Bugs Bunny and all the cartoons we still know today. They ended up winning seven Academy Awards, more than any other cartoon character in history. Seriously, go back there, the most beautiful things in the world. I love those cartoons. Not only that, but according to the 2005 TV Asahe Public Survey, Tom and Jerry were ranked as the 85th best anime of all time. Yes, you heard me right. That is correct. Tom and Jerry are anime. 
according to Japan. What else is anime that I don't know is anime? I don't know. This was the one that stuck out, but it became almost like a meme for a while there. People would just say Tom and Jerry's anime and send all the anime fans into a frenzy. It actually does make some sense because much of this has to do with cartoons that aired in the 1960s. Astro Boy started in the 1960s. That's clearly anime. Tom and Jerry cartoons finally made their way onto Japanese television in the 1960s. And because it didn't have much dialogue and it was all visual gags, everyone in Japan loved them. So they're associated just as much as Astro Boy as anime, as crazy as that is. I'm just like, I'm dumbfounded by the whole thing. I can't believe that Tom and Jerry's anime, but I'm going to start telling that to people. Like if, if I'm around some anime people and they start talking, they're like, so you like anime? I'm like, yeah, I like Cowboy Bebop and Tom and Jerry. All right, so we're back on the space plane. <laughs> And surprise, plane hijacking. A guy actually like fires a machine gun inside of a plane, which let me tell you, not a great idea. You really want to depressurize a, a giant metal space tube? Not a good idea at all. And there's a guy who just like whips out his money clip and he's like, I, I'll give you money. Take the others, but let me go, please. Ow! Hurry, or you'll get the same. Yeah, dude, like they're going to take your hundred bucks or whatever. We don't actually find out why they're doing this. No, we don't know what they're doing it for, but he assumes money, which is weird. I just thought of this, but uh, it's the same director as Gateway Shuffle. When the guy shoots the screen and we see the static and he stands in front of it, that's very reminiscent of when the space warriors call into the chief and they have that glow underneath their eyes. Kind of a motif for the director. Oh boy, Steve, we uh, we both looked into this research right here about hijackings in Japan. Because it seems kind of random, right? Well, where else but the 1970s would Cowboy Bebop take influence? There have been at least a few, right? A few Japanese airline hijacking attempts. Just a handful, baby. How many have been successful, though? Uh, zero. Zero. However, <laughs> one of the most famous hijackings is Malaysian Airline System Flight 653, which allegedly involved the Japanese Red Army. In 1977, the terrorist communist group apparently hijacked the plane. Uh, at least the pilot stated that before they crashed. They don't know who actually hijacked the plane. What we do know is that at least one person fired a gun, <laughs> kind of like this episode, and minutes later, people heard a loud explosion right by where the wreckage was. All 100 people were killed. And it became world news, especially in Japan, because of the Red Army-Japanese connection. I was looking into it. You would be surprised how many hijackings there just still are. Like, planes get hijacked all the time. All right, so when we're back on the plane, we get our first look at, uh, you know, our special character du jour here. Uh, Roko, not to be confused with Rocky Rococo, Pizza Maven of the Upper Midwest. All right, Not to be confused with Rococo. Uh, Colin's favorite period of art. Love it. Or uh, not to be confused with Rocco's Modern Life, the movie Rocky, or the streaming device in the back of your TV known as a Roku. It's Roko. So we get a look at Roko, who's nervous uh, that one of the hijackers is calling out to him because, I mean, I've never been in a hijacked plane, Ugh. which is probably a scary situation to begin with. But if you're on one and they're like, and you, Colin, you're like, um, <laughs> anyways, uh, he's kind of getting freaked out. And in reality, his gun is pointed at Spike sleeping with this goofy sleep mask on that has like eyes painted on it. It's I kind of so wish they were googly eyes, but I understand the, the you know, trying to save frames of animation, but... They they kind of look like googly eyes. And it's great because the terrorist is just like, Barrr! and he goes to like pistol whip Spike. Yeah. And Spike just kind of casually just, boop, just kind of moves out of the way. And then he just kind of uses his head. And he just sits up a little bit. And you literally see this terrorist like teeth shatter and rain down. It's just like, oh my God. All of his teeth fell out. All of his teeth fell out. And he kind of swings another around by the wrist. And then Faye pops up and knocks out the final hijacker with like, what is that, like sleep spray? What some is he doing? Of, I don't know. Maybe some shitty perfume. Sleepy time mace. Well, it's a good thing she didn't hit the woman. That would have been just, I couldn't handle that on the show. And then uh, the Bebop appears next to the space plane. And oh my God, do you know what just happened? You've been waiting for this. I have been waiting for this. They finally got a bounty. Eight episodes in. And it's crazy because... It's such an afterthought. Mm -hmm. This is like a 30-second opening, almost throwaway scene in the, the grander scheme of the entire episode. Except for the judo throw. Yeah, That's except for the judo part. throw. Yeah. But like, holy shit, they got a bounty. This is huge. Yep. Can we get a bounty counter going? Well, we Sure. You know what? I, we never Bounty needed, counter. We never needed it until today. One. Ding. You did it. You, are they real bounty hunters now? I guess so. Well, no, we know for a fact that Jet and Spike 
have caught people before because allegedly in, in episode one with the bell peppers and beef speech he asked what happened to that million wulong reward and it's because of spike wrecking all that stuff also what's really weird is that they must have flown into a different dimension because when they landed there the cops were ready to just take the criminals away because that's what they do they take the criminals no matter where they are like if they were at a restaurant or something they would pick up the criminals i'm not letting go of that why did they take twinkle maria murdoch back to the bebop it's called a plot device we're gonna be talking a lot of plot device this week we got this panning shot of docking boats near a busy airport inside a child is running around with a toy plane while people are patiently waiting for their flights i'm telling you buddy episode one uh asteroid blues same director once again he showed us the people episode four gateway shuffle we saw the people at the restaurant we actually get a good look at people behaving normally it's not just explosions and chaos and everything that we usually see in cowboy bebop and there's really fantastic background music going on here it's a song called slippery sleaze which if you were a fan of jazz in the late 90s this was a very modern guitar sounding jazz song especially for 1997 uh that is if you were listening to anything outside of avant-garde jazz <laughs> So, yeah, like, we literally see, okay, so now it's official. Mm -hmm. Bounty counter, mo counter moves to one. Spike's got his money, and he gives he gives Faye her cut of it. Not to mention it was a 26.72 share. Gave her 400,810 Wulongs of 1.5 Wulong bounty. What? Yeah, why did she get less money? <laughs> well, because, she, first of all, she's probably eaten a lot of their food. I get all that, but I'm saying, why is she getting a 26.72 share? That's, that's, that's the, random. It's the wage gap. Hey, we're a few episodes in here, of course, and obviously Faye is like, I'm going to the casino and politely waves goodbye, which might as well be flipping the bird at this point. We got the Faye and Spike dynamic. How you feeling about it? I don't know what to feel about it right now. Really? Because it's not, it doesn't seem to have a lot of depth to it. Like, I don't think they like each other very much. Spike finds Faye irritating. Uh, Faye finds Spike to just be annoying because he doesn't let her do whatever she wants. And I'm also confused why she continues to hang out with them. Well, why is Spike there either? I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like there's some deeper connection between Spike and Jet that we haven't gotten to yet. But with Faye, she showed up. She wasn't wanted. She eats all their food. I just, I don't understand how she's been assimilated into the crew completely. I think it's totally Jet, because let's think about this for a second. Why is Ayn there? Uh, he's adorable. True. I think Jet's just like, all right, if you're on the ship, you know what? Actually, this is a Jet problem. With Twinkle Maria Murdoch, he's like, well, I guess you're going to be on the ship from now on. He's just, I bet there's an entire closet of skeletons that you, you think can think he's got find. some family issues? Like he's just trying, it's like Texas Chainsaw where he's just trying to build a family, you know? I think he misses his hair. Uh, I love that shot though of uh, Spike and Faye talking to each other because they're like, they're in that half silhouette, right? And all the light is in the background and they didn't need to do that. They could have made it as bright as possible so we could see all the characters. But this director just likes to add a little bit of shadow, just like we saw in Gateway Shuffle. And I love that. It's just the small touches. So more importantly, we get to see the names of the bounties that they collected. And they are Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Well, well, well. What is that from? DuckTales. Woohoo. So Huey, Dewey, and Louie are named after Donald Duck's three nephews. Donald Duck, obviously, cartoon character. Uh, and they first debuted in a comic strip back in 1937. But today... They are better known for DuckTales, where they mm -hmm. star alongside their great uncle, Scrooge McDuck. Which also, I guess, was really popular in Japan. I didn't think about that until right yeah, now. Yeah, I knew that for some reason. Like, DuckTales is, like, just the iconography of DuckTales is big in Japan. Also, fun fact, first movie I ever saw in a movie theater, DuckTales the movie. Over on the side, we see Roko. He's he's just berating this delivery handler and he's grabbing him by the by the tie and he's like you better get this package over there buster and that's the music box that we're gonna see later which is crucial to the whole episode of course then roko spots spike and he decides to introduce himself by charging at him with a knife and this is weird too because like spike thinks he's a mugger at first and roko is just like oh wow that's the guy that was able to knock out those terrorists and he's so cool i'm gonna have him do cool stuff again by literally attacking him with a knife what if this went wrong what if spike didn't see you and you just stabbed him in the kidney let's talk about this for a moment uh towards the end of the episode we're kind of skipping ahead he pulls a gun on spike when he realizes that he's a bounty hunter what does roko think spike is does he think he's just like a good guy like a superhero is he yeah dead? he thinks that he's just a guy who is just really good at being violent and also collecting bounties like what he's a bounty hunter of course he's a bounty hunter how could he be anything else oh, i'm not saying this is like bad writing i think this literally shows the naivete of of roko yeah that he's just yeah. like of course the good guys are going to do something 
Like he doesn't even understand well, how and the world did, works. Did he not see like when the plane landed and the police got the guys and then Batman works for free? That's true. But I do have one kind of issue with this scene. Like you were talking about, he could have stabbed Spike in the uh, kidneys, or he could have fallen down like he did and shattered the goddamn plant that he's protecting for this entire episode. Yeah, I was worried about that too. Or just tripped and like stabbed himself with a knife. I just love it because I feel like we're seeing fanboys of Cowboy Bebop, what they would be like if they actually met Spike in real life. Yeah, they would actually try to stab him with a knife. No, I mean, like, they're, they're just freaking out over just, like, how cool Spike is. Like, Spike is cool. He is a cool guy. He does cool stuff. But this is the very first time we've had someone that's like, how is no one else noticing how cool you are? Like, he's freaking out over it. And Spike is just so embarrassed of him. So Spike, yeah, he just walks right past him into an elevator, and we see a shot on the ground, you know, where Roko's even trying to get his feet to match Spike's footsteps. It's a nice little shot. Of course, Spike ignores everything that he's saying, slips into the elevator, and he's got a damn cigarette in his mouth, but it's not lit. Oh. Well, that's because there's a sign behind him that says no smoking on the elevator. He has a habit of that. Yeah. But he doesn't eat this one like he did in episode three, but he doesn't light it either. So it's not Spike's sixth cigarette. It's not on the counter. He didn't light it. More amazingly is that Rocco apparently makes it down six floors in 10 seconds. That is pretty impressive. <laughs> Spike steps outside. And we have to play yet another audio clip and discovers there's a lot of helium on Venus. It's not like it really costs you anything. Give it up already. Huh? Venus has a lot of helium in the atmosphere. You can fix it with these little popper pills. Uh. Huh? Come on, that's not fair. You brought it on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Venus sounds terrible. Doesn't it? Yeah, it's like, oh, there's spores in the air, and oh, your your voice is going to be really high. And also, we're going to learn later, you can go blind, because fuck it, if you're poor, you go blind. All right, riddle me this. If you were living on Venus, would you really take pills to make your voice normal, or would you just be like, this is new normal? Who cares? Everyone's voice is the same. Yeah, that I, I probably would do that. I, I would just be like, yeah, my voice is high. Well, couldn't they have done something where it's like, oh, there's a higher amount, and your voice gets used to it after a while? I'm overthinking it. I just can't imagine that everyone is, like, hoarding these pills. <laughs> well, Colin, I'm gonna go all Neil deGrasse Tyson on your ass, except... Kind of fuck that guy because he's annoying on Twitter. Let's learn a little bit about Venus. First of all, it's nearly identical in size to Earth. But unlike most planets, Venus has no moons. Ooh. I guess that makes sense why they're on Venus then instead of like the moon yeah, by Venus. You know, uh, it has no moons until I uh, stand on the surface and pull my pants down. Then it's got one. <laughs> oh boy. Not to mention, its regular temperature exceeds 470 degrees Celsius, and I don't know what that means because I only understand Fahrenheit, but it sounds like a lot. It's pretty high. You'd melt. Also, its atmosphere is 90 times more dense than Earth's, with a 96.5% carbon dioxide uh, and 3.5% nitrogen ratio. Do you think I'd die of carbon monoxide poisoning or melt first? <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson pops in. Well, actually... I, I noticed that when you mentioned the atmosphere, you didn't mention any helium, though. Compared to other planets like Jupiter or Saturn, Venus's helium is relatively low, so we'll have to assume it was used in the colonization effort. That could be. That's a thing. Maybe that's what the plants are made out of. They're floating. Well, also have to assume some major breakthroughs in technology because scientists assume colonization could only really work if Venus were to rotate faster and even that would take thousands of years. What the fuck? But hey, good job getting it done in 70-ish years, Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> it is Who the fuck would want to, that seems like a lot of work. Uh, I actually read up on this and the, the current best estimate is that they would have to they would have to hurl asteroids at Venus to cause it to rotate faster. That sounds like a lot of work. Okay, well- Here's I mean, an idea, go to a different planet. Alright, now apparently in the Cowboy Bebop universe though we see these floating plants maybe they allow people to breathe on venus could that be i mean it's not on mars and spoiler alert you won't see these plants anywhere else still no word on why people aren't melting though oh very important scene all right this actually the scene is not important whatsoever but we just jump back to the bebop we see that ein is getting some pets from jet and he got him some tasty dog food yeah it's about time ein gets to eat what was the last time we saw ein eat he didn't even eat the bean sprouts did he no i mean we can assume that he had to eat some of the bean sprouts because he's alive he's probably eating all the dead bodies because jet can't be alone anyway spike eventually agrees to teach roko some lessons and spike gives a very familiar speech how did you do that you're tense i'm calm you apply excessive force I control that force through fluid motion. That means relaxing the whole body so it can react instantly without resistance. You know, without thought. It means becoming like clear water. 
Water can take any form. It drifts without effort one moment, then pounds down in a torrent the very next. Did you catch this when you were watching it? Did you know right away where it was from? Yeah, I was trying to place it, but I was like, I've heard this before. And I, I, I was like, it's from a kung fu movie, and I just can't figure it out. But it's actually from a Bruce Lee interview. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless. Shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow, or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Which he said on the Pierre Burton show back in 1971. I'm very familiar with Pierre Burton. Who the fuck is Pierre Burton? Who the fuck isn't Pierre Burton? You ever ask yourself that? Oh boy, uh... So we talked about Bruce Lee earlier in episode two. We talked about his movie career because a lot of what was happening in that early part of the series was just about Bruce Lee as a movie star, right? Like it didn't go any further than that. But like you said, Steve, earlier in the episode, the more that we learn about Spike, kind of more we learn about Bruce Lee. Uh, But before we explain that, we might have to talk a little bit about why Bruce Lee was a big deal. And unfortunately, that does have to touch on how Asian Americans and Asian people in general were treated in American media pre-Bruce Lee in cinema. The name that immediately pops up to me is Charlie Chan. Ooh, time to get heavy like Venus's atmosphere. Charlie Chan is a detective character played by seven different actors, all of which were white, all of which were given makeup and prosthetics to make them look more quote-unquote Chinese. Mm-hmm. And of course, Charlie Chan speaks in broken English. Oh, this is dark. And yet this was considered good representation back then, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. From, by everyone else but Asian Americans. Well, and this was pretty early on too, but this continued for a long time and it's still a trope that people wrestle with in cinema. So uh, maybe you saw the Doctor Strange movie? Oh boy, yes. Yeah. And so wait, who plays the Asian super sensei in that? White lady. Tilda Swinton, white lady. Remember when you were in your early 20s and you went on all those dates with all those girls and you'd say, hey, what kind of movies do you like? And they'd say, my favorite movie is Breakfast at Tiffany's. And you'd be like, oh, you're racist. Because Mickey Rooney played like an Asian guy in that movie and it's kind of terrible. There's a long and storied history of uh, yellow face in Hollywood cinema. Ancient Chinese secret. Number one son. These are terminology that still exist for some reason. And then there's this guy, Bruce Lee. He's born in 1940 in San Francisco, but he spent most of his formative years in China. But he is an Asian American. And he really did merge cultures together. At first, he's going to be a martial artist. But then he's like, no, 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 no. I want to be an actor. No, I want to be a martial artist. No, I want to be an actor. And he ends up being both. He comes up with all these really cool ideas, like maybe a TV show where he can show off his kung fu. Heck, they could even call it kung fu. And they do. They just don't cast him as the main character or the creator of the show. That's right. Bruce Lee created kung fu with David Carradine and they wrote him out. What about the 1990s sequel show Kung Fu The Legend Continues? And I want to make this very clear. A lot of stereotypes Bruce Lee created. He didn't create them to be stereotypes. They were taken and became stereotypes by by other people. So I'm not trying to say that Bruce Lee is the epitome of what Asian American culture is. It's not. It's, It's a slice of it for sure and it's very influential though. But the problem that most people have is that when they think of Bruce Lee, they think of this character from the movies. They think of this fighter. They think of this like guy who talks in riddles like all the other characters that they've they've seen on television when the real Bruce Lee is a really thoughtful guy he actually wrote a book about Wing Chun when he was only 23 years old did you write a book when you were 23 I know I didn't by the way also only received his high school degree when he was 20 years old why because he was bored yes he was one of those people that just gets bored by filler he hated filler he would consume book after book on philosophy fiction poetry and religion and yes of course he's studying in martial arts and what he likes to do is he likes to take a subject and just like i said get rid of the filler boil it down and he comes up with this brand new martial arts style called jeet kune do which i believe is way of the intercepting fist don't quote me on that basically here's how it works does it work in a real fight yes then it goes into jeet kune do if the answer is no It is not in Jeet Kune Do. He's not interested in just practicing poses and all that kind of stuff. It has to function in a real fight. He even said biting was fair game. And at the exact same time, he's a movie star and he's becoming a director and he's a writer and he's giving speeches and he's doing public demonstrations of the one inch punch and he's dead. That's right. He's dead. That's it. It's over. Age 32. Screeching halt. Stop. 
because he had seizures that caused his brain to swell. What caused it? Well, no one really knows. And this is just before he becomes world famous. So now that Bruce Lee is dead, his image and his philosophy is going to be controlled by the general public. Bruce Lee doesn't get to go out and speak for himself. He's not on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's not on the talk show circuit. They just treat him in the movies like that was Bruce Lee. So here's my theory. Uh, a lot of people like to look at his quotes and they like to just sit there and muse on it like, oh, be like water. What does that really mean? Personally, I think if Bruce Lee had lived, he would have simplified it even further. He would have made it even more direct and clear. He's not trying to create riddles. He's trying to communicate with you. So Spike really is taking on a more faithful adaptation of Bruce Lee's work. You know, Colin, I just want to say people always leave out the second part of that be like water quote. The teacup? No, they say be like water, you know, get wet, smoke more PCP. They always leave that part out. You know, they're, they're trying to like clean up Bruce Lee's image. Anyway... That's basically the story. So if you're wondering why Spike is always doing the very specific type of martial arts where he's mixing almost Taekwondo and Judo and a bunch of other martial arts, Jeet Kune Do, he's doing Bruce Lee style. Even though some websites say that he's doing Wing Chun, that is not true. All right, back to bebop land. So Spike gives this big philosophical speech. I mean, the closest approximation to Spike giving a philosophical speech. Rocco looks super confused because he's kind of a dunce. So then he asks the confused Rocco to attack him with a knife again. And for his troubles, Rocco gets flipped on his ass. And he's just kind of like staring up at the sky, like talking to Spike, just laying on his back. And this is another situation too where I'm just like, damn, um, I don't know how Rocco hasn't accidentally stabbed himself yet. It's a really nice scene, though, him just looking up at the sky. Oh, yeah. No, it is. It's a cool perspective because the default is you would be like camera looking down at Rocco on the ground. But it's nice to just have the point of view where he's just, you know, looking back up at the sky of Venus. I do enjoy that the reason that Rocco even notices that the mobsters are there is because there's an old guy that they bumped into. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what are you doing? You're little whippersnappers. I feel like in any other show, it would be like the gangsters being like, where is he, boss? Like yelling out loud. Yeah. Of course they're going to be quiet. They're looking for a guy. Anyway, Rocco freaks out. He hands Spike the plant and tells him to meet him at the edge of town by the cathedral, which means that Spike is now stuck with the plot device. There's a lot of plot devices in this episode. The first and foremost of this being the gray ash plant. But I do love the fact that when we're back on the bebop, we see Ayn eating food. It's about time. And even Jet's petting him while he's eating. It's just, it, that is the best day of Ayn's life so far. How good is it that Jet is like, oh, we should capture this crew. They show Rocco and then <laughs> Spike just removes the sack, just showing the gray ash plant. I love that reaction from Jet. So just like the ring in episode six, what's Faye's reaction to seeing this Same plant? Keep it, definitely. It's worth a lot more than those hoods. Their rewards are chump change. No. We can. <laughs> you had to think about that. Don't be a ditz. This thing is hot. It's too dangerous to hold on to. Sometimes you've got to take a risk. How much you lose at that casino? Which What's is basically that? like the flower from Beauty and the Beast. It really is. Now you point that out. I'm willing to bet that they took that influence because the case is exactly the same. Oh, yeah, exactly the same. Uh, so yeah, Faye's like, yo, let's sell this thing. It's worth a lot of money. I like how she's just hunched over and looking right through the glass like, oh, you should sell it, definitely. Tens of millions of dollars for one single plant. Woolongs! Woolongs, my bad. What's the name of this show? But it's great that Jed actually has to think about it. That he's kind of sweating because he's like, ah, I don't know. Because he's a former cop. So he's, he's trying to do right a little bit. A little bit, but it's just like... I don't know, this sketchy idiot hands you a plant, he's clearly being chased by people, and then he's like, oh, meet me at this place. Can you imagine, like, you were just walking down the street, Colin, and some guy was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, this plant, blah, 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 and then he gives it to you, and, and then he's just like, meet me by the, the, you know, Basilica Cathedral in downtown Milwaukee, and you're like, okay. Like, what the fuck? No, you don't have time for that shit. I feel like this would also be the plot device for, like, a 1980s sitcom. It's not mine. It's for a friend. But yeah, it's like, I, I don't know, Sp which is a weird wrinkle for Spike because he seems to suddenly have this code of honor where he's like, no, we gotta, this is what we gotta do. I gotta take this plant to this guy. He pities him. He was so annoyed by him two seconds before and then finally he's like, all right, fine. I'll show you some moves. You know? All the more reason. This guy's annoying. Now, before we get to Rocco's sister, we see this amazing shot, this lonely, lonely desert, and the swordfish, too, is just flying over there, because, of course, Spike is going to go meet up with uh, his sister, having discovered some sort of information. They must have Googled it or something. I love this look, though. We have a desert with lots of foliage in the sky, and when we do get to uh, where the sister is living, lush trees 
and just nothing but desert. It's uh, it's very fantasy-like. Uh, you know, the greens and the yellows. Clearly, this is a reference to Mountain Dew. Very popular in the 90s. <laughs> uh, you mean Surge. Does Roko's sister live in a broken-down spaceship? Because they call it a wreck shop, but that definitely looks like it has thrusters and whatnot in the back of it. I assumed it was a broken-down spaceship. That's what I thought. I only knew it was a wreck because I turned on the subtitles for the second time. Jet's like, a wreck? Who knows? There might be some crazy people living in there. I'm like, what? A wreck shop? What the fuck's a wreck shop? Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is like, I don't know, like, if you if you sell, like, your, your fucking Etsy crochet stuff out of a broken down spaceship, is it a wreck shop? Is that what she's selling? We I know don't she's know, knitting. I just said that. Oh, how cool are the shots, though, of Spike just wandering around inside the spaceship? Just, like, all that sunlight pouring in and lots of shadow. It's just very, sur- it's dreamlike. I-, I would call it a classic wreck shop look. Of course, uh, Stella's blind, but that doesn't stop her from grabbing a gun and pointing it at Spike. Because I guess she's really paranoid because, of course she is, Roko's dealing with some shady people. But then we have that wonderful moment of Spike saying, I'm not a criminal. Right there, both hands up. I'm not a criminal. Whoa, that makes me sound more like a criminal, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually, I really like that. That's probably one of my favorite lines of the whole episode. I don't know, like, that moment of self-reflection, I don't think you see that in a lot of characters. And I wouldn't even expect it out of Spike because he's always trying to, like, play it cool and stuff. But just the fact that he's like, oh, man, that makes me sound like more of a criminal. Well, the good news is that Stella puts out the tea for the two of them. And where did she get the water? Wreck shop. Wait, what? What? It looks like, what? She bought it at the wreck mall, you asshole. Uh, let's be honest. It looks like she lives in a warehouse, like a busted down, broken warehouse. I have no idea how she's living there at all. But uh, Stella shows off her brand new music box and they listen to it uh, together. So the audience is hearing the music as well as Spike and Stella, which means that the music is being used digimonetically. (laughs) You've learned so much throughout the course of this podcast series. Why don't you explain the concept one more time for those that maybe haven't listened to episode six. Digetic music and there's non-digetic music. Digetic music is when we are, as viewers are hearing a song and also that music is playing inside the universe of the episode. Just like the music box. Yes. So when you are watching Say Anything and that dipshit is harassing that woman by holding up the boombox above his head and Peter Gabriel's playing, we're hearing Peter Gabriel, but he's also blasting Peter Gabriel at a woman who's not that interested in him. But it's also diegetic. Non-diegetic is when we hear a song as viewers, but the people in the movie or TV show are not hearing it. So when you're watching the Rocky montage scene, Rocky's not actually listening to the music. Uh, by the way, the song that's playing out of the music box is Stella by Moore, which might be where Stella got her name, or maybe the song is named after Stella. Hey, Colin, shut up for a second. I'm going to tell you about music boxes. Music boxes has been around for at least 500 years. Bet you didn't know that dipshit, starting off with a sort of gear that would ring bells in a certain order. But beginning in the late 18th century, Antoine Favre invented and quickly popularized a new version involving a musical comb, a small cylinder with organized protruding spikes which pluck the teeth in a specific order to create the notes. And you know what? A player piano is basically just a big-ass music box, and big-ass music boxes already exist. Did you know that music boxes can be as tall as six motherfucking feet? I I didn't actually. Now you know, you big idiot. Also, if you're a fan of music boxes, you probably want to go to Kyoto, Japan to visit the Aruge Museum, where one of Antoine Favre's original music boxes are still on display. Ah, But let's be honest here. This is not a real music box that's playing this song. It's like a xylophone or something. But now that you pointed out, that makes a lot more sense about the bells, because music boxes always kind of sound like bells, so it's almost like they were trying to emulate that sound with the, the thing that was spinning around inside a music box. Also, inside of a music box are gray ash seeds. Turns out Roko was illegally shipping them. Bum, bum, bum. Stella says that Spike and Roko have something beautiful inside of them, which Spike says he lost a long time ago. <laughs> when people think about Spike in the wrong ways and like the depth of the character and they, they don't get into the nuance of him and they think about him on just surface levels like he's cool he's a badass and all this stuff and Spike much like Bruce Lee tries to sort of mythologize himself in that way and this is part of the way that he does it so when she's like yeah you and Roko are both beautiful inside which is a cornball line but okay and then his response is I lost that a long time ago yeah, I think it's really inspiring though that we have a blind character who can somehow read people even though they can't see. Isn't that just nice that we have a blind character that just has magical powers to understand people just instantly, you know? Magical blind girl. Fave trope. We do need to talk about that just for a second because that really actually annoyed me watching it this time. I think it, I think it works fine within the context of the episode. I, have you ever seen that episode of The Boondocks? 
where Granddad has to fight the blind guy. No. They keep thinking that the blind guy's going to be better at fighting because he's blind and obviously he'll know samurai stuff. <laughs> Instead, yeah. he just yeah. knocks him out. Of course he does. He's blind. He's blind, yeah. It's just, it, that's, I find it really disrespectful when they kind of almost fetishize uh, any sort of hindrance to a person, you know? But of course, that's also part of Japanese culture, the blind swordsman, blah, 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 blah. If we actually see Spike go back to the bebop to ask Jet, uh, you know, how much are the going rate for plot devices or plot device seeds, I should say. And he says, millions and millions. Probably be hard to find a buyer, but if you did, I'd say about eight million each. Why? Did you get some? No. I thought so. It's just such a casual conversation. Things aren't going so well for Roko, though. Oh, yeah, because Bebop's got this weird <laughs> thing with, like, bad guy bathroom scenes. Is this, like, the third or fourth one that we've seen? Third. It's the third, because we had Asteroid Blues. Yeah. He can't blink. So we're shooting at damn near 50% <laughs> for, of, of all episodes feature, like, Terror in the bathroom. And they're all kind of the same bathroom. Like, they don't have a door on the outside. The light just kind of pours in. Yeah, and they're just kind of, like, dingy. And then, yeah, someone's either washing their hands or taking a piss. And then it's like, uh-oh. It's even better this time because Roko goes in to just take a leak at a stall right next to the boss that's looking for him. Right as everyone walks in. And you think it's, like, a trap? Yeah. Any other show, it would have been a trap. But for Kobe Beelhoff, it's a coincidence. Like, yeah, and she's like, oh. We can't find him anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Just taking a piss next to the guy who looks like ripped LeVar Burton. Oh, God, we got to talk about him later. I love that voice actor. Picaro and his gang take Roko down to shipment from Call of Duty 4 for a little one-on-one. -on -one. I'm really proud of that joke. Finding out that Roko has lost the plot device, Pico threatens to track down his sister Stella before shoving his cigar into his forehead. Really Tarantino-esque scene here. I know it's not all just Tarantino, but the way that as soon as the cigar goes into the forehead, we cut to the airplane going over that drowns out the sound of the screaming. It really emphasizes that he's helpless. That he's being drowned out. I love that. So Colin, if you were to take a cigar being put out on you by some uh, menacing villain, where would you go for? I... Probably not the face, because it looks painful. Probably not the face. Let me tell you what I do. I always default to the butt. If I had to take a bullet, I'd take it to the butt. You got the meaty cheek, man. Like, there's no, there's nothing, like, crucial there. It's just like a big pillow waiting for pain. So, if I was going to take a cigar, I'd take a cigar to the butt. But the best place to actually take a cigar is to have it uh, shoved into your forehead. You mean when it's lit, right? You're not talking about a Monica Lewinsky deal, are you? No, this is not a Monica Lewinsky deal. We're talking lit cigar and someone's just trying to do like, you know, the, the, the cigar burn on you. And the forehead's good? The forehead's good. Now you're going to look like an asshole for a while, let's eh, be honest. Nothing new. It turns out that uh, you don't have a lot of that like fat and thick muscle stuff. It's basically just skin and then your skull, right? Uh-huh. So if you were to take it in, say, the butt, uh, that's a lot of fat and a lot of muscle, especially in my muscular tush. And that would take like forever to heal. Now this, it's just literally the skull stops it from going deeper. So you have a pretty surface level burn. So uh, yeah, it'll heal up pretty quick. Huh. Good on Roko. And Picaro's actually a pretty cool guy. Yeah. Well, we now join Faye on her search for Picaro because she wants that money. This scene is insane. Is it not? It's it's a little nutty. This whole sequence, like, the next, like, 90 seconds is just like, what the fuck? Oh, it's only 30. It's only 30? Also, I like the uh, the color contrast. It looks a lot like episode six when Spike is in the bar. We have the red in the, in the darkness. That red is returning for Faye walking into this bar. It's just a reused asset, but it looks really nice. She finds that big slubby guy that's just kind of passed out and picks him up and threatens to hurt him. And, of course, a bunch of people pull out guns and Faye... Uh, because we've seen that she's really skilled in a, in combat. Like, remember when she sent those missiles back by pressing a button? And remember when she sprayed the sleepy spray on the woman earlier? Obviously, she's going to be able to shoot five guns out of people's hands and also destroy a supporting beam that falls down on people with just a handgun. Like, this scene is kind of weird to me because the whole thing is, is Jed is kind of the brains and, and the leader and the organizer. Uh, Spike is is a little conniving, but mostly he's there. I, I, I don't want to call him the muscle because he's not like a big dude, but he's the guy who he does the shooting and the fighting and all that stuff. That's what he's there for. You could certainly say he has offensive capabilities. He has offensive capabilities. You know, he studied the blade. Faye, on the other hand, her whole thing is 
She's a she's a grifter. She's a huckster. That's what she does. Is she she manipulates people. So I don't know when did she get the ability to do this shit. I'm not against her being able to hold her own in a fight or whatever. Like I would find this far fetched if Spike did it. Although maybe she's a marks person. Oh boy, let's talk about the very next scene, of course, which uh, means we have to talk about homophobia in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Faye kicks down the door. We got two gentlemen. They're enjoying some sexy time on the bed. And Faye just sticks the gun right in his mouth and says, tell me where, you know, Picaro is. If if they swapped out the genders or whatever, I still like the scene. Yeah, the scene works fine. And I was actually surprised, not because it's two dudes in a cartoon fucking. I was surprised. I guess, I mean, maybe a little bit, but like... I was surprised that it was handled just like normally. Like it wasn't like a, whoa, it was just like she walks in. She's just like, hey, where's this guy? And she just moves on. Yeah, there's no, there's no, ew, there's no of that like obnoxious stuff. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. because I mean, this could be played for shock value pretty easily, but it's just like, it's just there. And guess what? There's gay people in this universe like that's this exists it's not a big deal no one's drawing attention to it it's just two guys yeah it's fine and i guess watching it now in 2018 it's just like oh that was pretty progressive of you cowboy bebop and then it just kind of moves on except it wasn't so simple when it aired on adult swim oh no what did they do so they digitally went in and uh there's a guy that's on top of another guy and the guy that's on top he gets the gun in the mouth they erase the guy that's laying down on his back so this guy just looks like he's fucking a pillow. It looks so weird and unnerving. Is that better? Well, let's think about this for a second. So uh, apparently you can have topless men on television, correct? I would say so. I think so. Uh, well, you definitely can. The FCC will have no issue with that. We see them all the time when we're watching pro wrestling. So we see topless men together all the time. No issue whatsoever. But the fact that they were engaged in any sort of sexual activity meant they had to get rid of it. They had to airbrush it away, which that is just homophobia, plain and simple. And it's weird, too, that like they're, it's like, oh, yeah, like a guy just randomly fucking a pillow, which totally draws attention to the scene in a weird way and changes the tone dramatically. I mean, I know this is anime, but no power. Hello fucking please. Unless it's my body pillow that has uh, my favorite cartoon character, Sailor Mercury, on it. But yeah, I love this scene. I've, I mean, going beyond the whole stupid homophobia, I just love that scene of the guy not being able to talk and Faye just being like, give me the information. She's not very good at this. Oh, really cool shot. When we go and join uh, Rocco and Spike, they have the camera doing a fake pan and they show the the columns lining up together. Oh, yeah, it's got like a pseudo 3D thing kind of going on, right? And like before... Spike informs him, like, hey, yeah, you know, you're worth a lot of money, but not as much as this plant. And that's when Rocco pulls out the gun. And shit goes down. Like, seriously, watching this. Hey, all right, all right, all right, all right. You just watched this for the first time, Steve. What did you think was going to play out in this scenario? I assumed it was going to be standard gunfight, basically. So Spike was going to take out all the guys and maybe he would find himself in, you know, uh, a compromising circumstance at some point. And then like Faye and and Jet would come in and save the day, which is sort of what happens, but not entirely. I would say Faye causes more problems. Yeah. And I think this is, again, like testament to Cowboy Bebop and maybe I'm kind of underestimating the show a little bit, but of course it doesn't go right. It's even when it, it turns out in their favor, ultimately, it's messy, which is one of the reasons why I like this show. I like the, uh, I just like the shot of just Faye firing all those machine gun rounds from the Red Tail and just Jet being like, whoa, Faye, they're going to kill him. He's in such a different zone. I, and plus it means that Faye is in her own world. Why would she care? Yeah. She doesn't know anything about this. Also the, the continuation of the Faye-Jet relationship, which is based entirely on like monetary transactions. That's true. A really nice touch here is uh, Picaro saying, oh my God, they're bounty hunters. Like just reminding you once again, he's in his own world. He thinks that Spike is a patsy and then he realizes, no, wait, we're in trouble. They don't need to include that line. Normally, we would just take it for granted. It's that extra small touch. But let's talk about it. Faye is insanely badass in this episode, is she not? She's shooting guns out of hands. She's she's sticking guns in mouths. She's showing up and blowing up things. It's kind of weird, to be honest. Oh, get used to it. I just want to know, like, I don't mind Faye's character being like this. I just don't know when this occurred. Like, when when did she snap her fingers and then... Well, all the other times we saw her without a gun. This time she has a gun. That's true. Uh, one of the gang members actually charges at Roko, but wouldn't you know it? It finally all clicks for him, and he flips the guy right on his back, gives a thumbs up to Spike. Spike's giving a thumbs up to him. What did you think when you saw the bullet go right through Roko? I literally, like, as I was watching it, I was just sitting on my couch 
petting my cat. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> they, isn't it weird? It's your standard scene and they don't cut away. They don't show the bullet coming at him. He's still in the exact same shot of giving the thumbs up and it just lingers and then bam. It just gets blasted. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's weird too because, I mean, I was shocked and then sort of like, oh, but at the same time, I was like, wait, I didn't even like this character the whole time. But it's like, maybe I did like him a little. I liked him a little bit. Also, Faye uses the barrel of the red tail and puts it right next to Pico's head. But it gets even sadder because Rocco drops the plants and it just, he literally watches it wither and die in front of him. So, God. And he does some real sad bastard dying stuff at the end, too. Holy cow. Well, the first thing he does is he tries to take care of his sister, at least. Then after that, he's like, oh, we could have been friends. Actually, he doesn't even say we could have been friends. He goes, I wonder if in another life, if we would have been friends. It's just like... Oh, dude, you fucking sad motherfucker. Did you see this coming at all? No, I actually didn't. I was pretty surprised. I, I didn't think he was going to die. Um, I was partially terrified that he was going to join the crew, which I would not have been happy with. Oh, God, that's true. I think the reason this episode is so revered in some ways is because it's your standard anime writing with a very Cowboy Bebop ending. Because you can already write it in your head. You know, Roku gets shot in the shoulder. He's almost dead. We think he's going to die. And then Spike visits him in the hospital. And he's like... I guess I got to go to jail, but because I gave the police the information, I'll be out in no time. And my sister can see now. She says, you know, like all of that stuff. Like you can write that version in your head. And it, it's it's like, it, there's nothing about this that says that Roko has to die. There's nothing about this that leads you into it, which is good, I think, because it makes it all the more shocking and just kind of sad. Good swerve. We flash forward. Spike's at the hospital and he's dropping off the uh, flowers because uh, the surgery's coming up for Stella and she's so excited. And the first thing she wants to see is Rocco. But I do love that she says, wait, is he in jail? <laughs> like, well, of course she would assume that. He's probably been in jail before. She just touches Spike's face and with her super blind powers, which all blind people have, of course. Yeah, she's basically Mantis from Guardians of the Galaxy. She realizes that Roko is dead and immediately assumes, just goes, ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. He was doing something wrong, I bet. It's even sadder. Spike instead just says, you know what? You were right all along. He was a really great guy. And goes onto the city streets, stops by a bazaar, picks out an apple, and we finally see all those plants, those plants that cause blindness. And it just says, see a space cowboy. And it's like an abrupt ending, but it's beautiful because it's all done to Stellar by more. We hear the music box once again, which is being used uh, non-Digimonetically. In this case, when you watched it, what did you think of the ending? I thought it was it was kind of interesting because the the whole blind sister thing is just a little hokey to me. But I did like how she's kind of a dick. You know, it's like, oh, Roko just died, and she's like, well, he's probably doing dumb criminal shit. And it's just like, wow, I didn't expect that at all from you because you know they set her up as just like this cute, sweet, oh, this poor blind girl, uh, and it's like, no, she's kind of a dick. And and that was an interesting twist on it, I suppose. I don't think she's being a dick. I think she's just like, yeah, I can't see, and that means I can't work, and the only thing I can rely on is my brother, and he keeps fucking up by going and hanging out with criminals instead of doing a fucking job. You know, I felt bad for her. But it does tie together nicely with the ending. A, a lot of people will say, Come You Be Up is a show that's about existentialism. And then they don't ever seem to reference what the hell that means. I think the spores falling down is just kind of like, this means nothing. Like, why are the spores here? Why do they cause blindness? Why is Roko dead? The show, this episode's really good just because it's written like your standard anime episode. And then it just goes at the end. It's like, there's no control over this just because you expect something to happen. Just because you think Roko's dead because he was doing something bad doesn't make it true. In fact, he was doing good things and he died anyway. It's all meaningless. And that's what the spores being drifted around by the wind. I think that's what that means. Yeah, I like. I just like the juxtaposition of uh, just how pretty the spores are, I guess. So when you hear the word spore or you think of the word spore, you think of like gross ass like mushroom shit, right? Uh, and, and these, they look like uh, when you pick, you know, the dandelion things that with the white caps, with the white tops, and you blow them and the little poofies go everywhere. Oh, those are dandelions. They're just like late season yeah, ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they kind of look like those, but like giant sized versions of them. And it's this really beautiful thing. And Spike is just sort of walking somberly through these spores as they fall down. Uh, but at the same time, it's this beautiful moment. You know in the back of your head, oh, those spores literally will make you go blind. You have this cool juxtaposition of this natural beauty and then the fact that even though it's this beautiful thing, it can literally blind you. Also, just the, we see, you know, it must be sunset. It must be dusk or, or, or something. 
uh, because we see that kind of mushy golden color in the sky that we haven't seen since maybe episode five in, in Spike's memories. And just that shot of uh, Stella sitting in the hospital bed and looking out the window at the things that caused her to be in the hospital. And not to mention that Spike's the only one that looks up. Everyone else is used to it. They don't care. So it's a really touching moment to see kind of that isolation of Spike being kind of bewildered by this. Yeah, it's a really touching ending. One of the most famous ones. But that's enough about what we think. The Spike cigarette counter is still at five. That's surprising. He hasn't gone through a pack yet. Not even a pack. Come on, Spike. What are you doing? We saw Ina eating. We saw him getting a lot of good pets. What will you say about this episode's I know meter. Uh, well, I'm just glad that this good boy got some num nums. So uh, I'm gonna give him a Sven. I'm sorry. What is that? It's a Sven. Sven. No. Sven. Sven. It's 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 ten in German. A uh, ten out of ten. Good boy. Extra tasty dog food. Steve, well, you've been digging in the depths there. A Funimation Inherited Movie Database. What can you tell us about this episode? Waltz for Venus. Hey, Colin. I'm not even gonna look and assume it's a four. Let's see what it is. It's a four! On Funimation.com. On Funimation.com. The average for every Cowboy Bebop episode so far. Ooh! And here in the movie database? Uh, IMDb, a shockingly high 7.8, which falls just outside of the standard deviation of IMDb bullshit. That would make it the second highest rated episode so far. Only behind Ballad of Fallen Angels. Why? Is it because it's sad? It is kind of sad, but is it really that... I don't know. Oh my God, Rocco dies for no reason. Yeah, I mean, that part's sad. But it's like- His last thoughts are watching the plant that he's been shielding for so long wither in front of him. Everything falls apart. Okay, it's sad. But like, I don't know. I think it's probably because this episode deals with melancholy. Seems like any episode that touches on melancholy gets a higher rating. Battle of Fallen Angels, Asteroid Blues, and now this one. Just that kind of wistful, sad feeling that Bebop is- very, very good at doing. And I wonder how many people actually think about that from the entire episode and if they just remember the very end of it, of him going to the hospital. That final scene is outstanding. We, we I think we talked about that longer than most anything else in this episode. Well, uh, I think it got a 7.8 on IMDb because I inflated it with my 10 out of 10 score because I was like, good pillow fucking, parentheses, adult swim edit, end parentheses. Oh, God. All right, Steve, Waltz for Venus, all together. What'd you think? Uh, I enjoyed it. It's another solid episode. Again, it doesn't feel like it's really moving any broader overarching story forward. I do like how we see some character growth from Spike. What are you talking about? What is it? What is the growth there? I don't see it. I don't even know if it's growth so much as it's revealing a different layer of his personality. I like when Spike's a little more vulnerable and he kind of puts the cool guy bullshit aside. You kind of get that with, with his interactions with Rocco, the fact that he's not like, yeah, let's sell this plant. Uh, he actually, even though Rocco's super annoying and literally tries to stab him, he is you know, kind of open and kind to him. And so you're seeing a softer side of Spike. And then to counterbalance that, I guess, Faye goes full Rambo. So there you go. That's interesting they mentioned that. They really did balance that really well. They're like, well, you're not going to get much action in this show. So we're going to yeah. start off with a hijacking and well, shooting and I, all this stuff. Yeah, I feel like you can't have Spike doing his normal Spike stuff if you're going to use this episode to show off his sensitivity, which it really does highlight that. I mean, if you think about the violence that Spike, everything is like, even even the gross stuff, like when he knocks out that guy's teeth in the beginning, it's almost incidental that his head just goes up and like shatters that guy's jaw. There's nothing like visceral or mean or, or, or anything about the violence that he enacts. It's actually kind of nurturing because he's actually showing Roko how to fight a little bit, which I guess helped him out in the end for a little bit. Although, now that I say it out loud, what would have happened is the guy would have run up and punched Roko on the ground. Who could say what would have happened next by learning from Spike? He died. You know, I really, I can't say anything more than I haven't already said. This is just, it is, it's a, it's an, it's a gotcha episode. It's like, look, we can do a standard TV show if you want, and we can do it really, really well. And I'll say that. I, I want to make this very clear. It's not the ending that just makes it. This is a very well-oiled machine at this point. Everything in the first 18 minutes is super solid. It's just that final ending that really is that, that Cowboy Bebop sprinkling, just something that we don't see in any other show. And Something that I don't think most other shows would ever risk, and even if they did, I don't think they would have do. They wouldn't be able to do it right. But Cowboy Bebop does, and that's uh, that's a testament to the show. Uh, not an episode I would rank as highly as the other ones, but when I very first saw it, I was over the moon with this episode. This was one of my favorites. Watching it this time, I think it's just because I know the ending too well. I do want to highlight the great voice acting, if we could, for just a moment. Bob Pannenbrook as Picaro, who is the boss. Oh, Rocco, blah blah blah. He has such like a soothing evil voice. I feel like anyone else would be like, 
all right, Roko, where is it? But instead, he's kind of sultry. He's he's trying to calm you down before he hurts you. Really good voice acting. Sadly, uh, he passed away in 2006. Also, there was Tom Fawn as Roko. Uh, let's talk about for a second, the dude had to go from going, wow, I learned Kung Fu, to do you think we would have been friends? That's a big range, and he keeps that character consistent. Yeah. And he's super annoying, which fits the character. And Emily Brown as Stella, who you might recognize as Melfina from Outlaw Star, another fantastic anime. She actually stopped doing anime shortly after this aired and went on to produce television for preschoolers, which I bet pays a lot better than anime, but what a total loss to the industry. She has such a great timber. I don't know how else to phrase it. Bro, somebody's got a voice, Tinky Winky, and it ain't going to be me or you. And frankly, it's just... You know, a fantastic episode with great voice acting. I love that we're finally focusing on people. We learned so much about VT. We learned so much about when. We learned so much about Roko. It's no longer just about an event or a circumstance. It's about the people. And that's what makes Color You Up so, so great. Well, Colin, that pretty much wraps up this episode. So, if people want to contact us on the internet, where are they going to find you at? Dr. Karate Chop on Twitter. That's at Dr. Karate Chop. You can also go to videogamesaredumb.com or youtube.com slash videogamesaredumb. And more importantly, if you want to yell at me for making fun of anime on the anime show, sorry, I actually like this show a lot. I really do. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. If you have any questions, comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. That's at Optimism Vaccine, which is where this beautiful show is hosted, the podcast you are listening to right now. And I'm sure you're saying, I love this podcast. Where can I find more content just like this, Steve? I love it. I love it. Where can I roll up this this podcast and just, just cover it in Vaseline and just... You can go to OptimismVaccine.com. That's OptimismVaccine.com. There are tons of other podcasts on there that we have hosted. There's also some cool articles. Uh, we cover TV, movies, all kinds of pop culture, video games, you name it. We have written about it or we have recorded a podcast about it. Probably, maybe, I don't know. For Colin Tanner, I'm Steve Cuff. See ya, Space Cowboy. I can't wait for the next episode because we're finally heading to Earth. Why is that exciting? You see Earth literally every day. Wait, wait, how do you know what happens next episode? I've actually seen every anime ever. What? But you told me you've never seen any anime. It's true. Uh, I've also penned a number of novels under the name Richard Bachman. Oh my God. How many secrets have you been keeping? I was also the showrunner on Cardcaptor Sakura and Buso Shinkei Moon Angel. You, you translated anime into English. <laughs> oh God, no. That's what I thought. I was working on the original Japanese production. What? Next episode, jamming with Edward. You gotta be kidding me.